Caloundra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is every student matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives, as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. In this podcast, I interview Barbara Seawood, Head of Department Senior Schooling Languages at Kiwana Waters State College and District Panel Chair for Chinese on the Sunshine Coast. Here at CCPS, our international learning programs with Scotland, Canada, Japan, mainland China, Macau, Hong Kong and recently Vietnam, India and Nepal have all contributed to our students' understanding of their place in the world. Each country's cultures, histories and individual children help the CCPS community engage with the world to explore, to learn and to create. Our Chinese international program embraces the global village we live in. So what are the challenges our international students face in an Australian school? What do teachers need to be aware of in terms of learning styles and language challenges? And what are the benefits of international immersion for our domestic students? Barbara, thanks for joining me today. You're very welcome. Now, Barbara, you're a highly experienced Chinese language teacher, and this goes quite a way back in your personal and professional life. Can you take us through your history with teaching Chinese? Well, I've been teaching for 25 years. In that time, I've probably been teaching Chinese language for about um, 20 of those years. Uh, I suppose leading up to that teaching of Chinese language. It goes to the learning of Chinese language as well as a foundation for that and that's been since I was very very young. I uh, was in primary school in Hong Kong and um, and then high school I was offered um, Chinese language as one of my subjects and then university of course going through that way. What interests you about teaching Chinese and why did you decide to make a career out of it? just recently had a discussion with my one of my colleagues about the love of language and the love of Chinese language. So it starts with the passion for that language. Um, then uh, I guess my love of teaching Chinese language is to explore that development amongst students and that love of language first and foremost and then where it can take students. Why Chinese as opposed to one of the other Asian languages? Well, I think my personal journey is probably just mm-hmm. testament to that. You know, I just grew up with it and, um, and it was part and parcel of my life. Um, I, it's, just, it's just who I am, you know. Mm. You're obviously very passionate about it. Mm. So let's have a look at the differences between the Chinese education system and mm. the Australian system. As mm. you know, we have a number of Chinese students coming in to mm. the Australian system as international students. Mm-hmm. What are the main differences that they're going to face there? Uh, I guess uh, in the first instance the decision for um, a family to want to remove their child from the Chinese education system and bringing them into Australia, the first main point of difference is actually the fact that if they remove themselves from that system it's very difficult for them to re-enter. So it's a a big commitment 
to say we're no longer going to partake in the Chinese education system. We're going to, we're going to, um, you know, part, you know, holus bowls commit to a completely different education system that is um, that um, we cannot reverse that decision more or less. It's Australian system or nothing after that. So that's the first thing about the Chinese system is that they really are very inflexible about um, that coming and going. You know, in Australia, if a student left a school and then came back, we'd try and facilitate that re-entry. In China, that's just not going to happen that way. I find that quite fascinating that it's such a serious commitment. Mm. So there would be a lot at stake then for a student who comes to Australia. Absolutely. There's, uh, you know, the, the value placed in education first and foremost is... is um, it's high in China, so parents want to know that their um, their children are going to get the best option for them. And then on top of that, in China, they've got it's a very it's highly competitive. So if in the penultimate um, for students in China is to complete the the, the Gaokao, the you know the university entrance exams, and the, there's always a lot of discussion about the pressure put on students for that, the competition in it, so on and so forth. Parents in China see, you know, the overseas um, education experience as something that gives their child that upper hand in the competition for university and all of that sort of thing and further employment down the track. So is that the main motivation? I, I believe it is one of the mo our main motivators for choosing another system, yes. So if we look at the Chinese education system, mm. how are Chinese students taught in China as opposed to the way we may teach here in Australia. Okay, so um, we've got to think first of all about that Confucian ethic that sits underneath Chinese society in general, that, about that, um, that value of learning and of education and of, and of scholarship. Now um, I suppose in that, in that sense um, Chinese people will learn in um, that way where that they, it's, it's very uh, still much a rote learning kind of a thing, that they, it's a solitary individual kind of a thing where it's just information in and then regurgitation out. So, um, and if you think about a Chinese school where, and the, another big difference is of course class sizes, they've got enormous class sizes. So the flexibility in doing what, what we might do here in Australia and have you know different group sizes and um, and try to get students to elicit information and try and think about what the answers might be rather than give them the responses is, um, is something that's quite alien to them here because in China the classes are so big and they're just getting them through in preparation for this university entrance exam. And so the, the context here is so different, you know, it's very alien for them. The other side, the other thing about the, that Confucian ethic in education is that the teacher is the source of all knowledge. So um, if you have in Australia this scenario where um, uh, you know, the teacher's asking for the students to think about what the answer is, some Chinese students might actually perceive that as being not quite what the teacher should be doing and perhaps then they're not a very good teacher because they're not giving me the answer. They don't seem to know what the answer is. They're asking me for what the answer is. So. Um, that's a challenge there in itself, I guess, um, another sort of learning difference, so to speak. So if you understand that about historically and culturally from where those Chinese students are coming from, 
the experience of an Australian classroom is actually, you know, on top of all the social emotional stuff, an incredibly challenging and confronting scenario to try and work out. I've actually, I personally ex have experienced that when you are asking for an analytical response mm. and etc. So how do you, as an English teacher mm. or as a teacher in general, um, broach that different learning style? Mm. It almost has to go back to bare basics. When I was, it, when I am in the classroom with those students, I actually go back to thinking about basic literacy skills and then build from there. So if you have um, a, a range of students who we know have been learning in very much a teacher knows everything, student just takes it in kind of scenario and you're trying to move them on from there, you really do have to start from that place and do a lot of scaffolding and a lot of, uh, you know, um, close exercises and that sort of, and a lot of modelling of things for them to become familiar with what you want to do before you move on. Now, we actually don't have a lot of time in our, you know, school year to give them the chance to catch up and, and try and then move on to that analytical stage. So. Um, other strategies that might be used is about breaking up those Chinese students and those groups and getting them to work with Australian students a bit more. Um, they don't necessarily like that a lot and find it very uncomfortable so it's always a bit of a balancing act to know when it is time to push them a little bit as opposed to you know give them everything that they want to know in terms of information to then work with later on. One thing on that, on that note, I think that impetus that we have to want them to behave like Australian students in our classroom, probably it's, it's well-intentioned, but it actually gives us all a rod for our own backs, for the students and for us as the teachers, because um, what I have observed over time is this, is that you have students that you think are not performing very well in the classroom. They struggle with giving you verbal responses and so on and so forth. And they're not doing very well with that interactive stuff in the classroom that you like to see from Australian students, even if it is heavily scaffolded. However, what I have found that even the students who have performed, not performed very well in that area, when it comes to an assessment or an exam, or if we are talking about getting a good OP, they come up trumps. So when we think about what is in that realm that they are good at, they're good at exams, they're good at practicing a particular style of writing, a particular way of writing, and learning that for what it is we want them to do. So I think we put in a lot of angst about what they're doing in the classroom. It works for Australian students, but it doesn't necessarily work for them. And, um, and I think we've got to relax a little bit and trust them a little bit that they have had probably up until now about 10 years of schooling to practice all of those other things that have worked for them to get a result. And we don't see that because we see them in the classroom, they go away. They do what they want to do or what they have learned for a long time to succeed academically and then they, they actually do bring it to the table in the end. So we've got to probably 
relax a little bit too. Give them what they what we would like them to do in the classroom, but probably relax about how well they do that in the classroom. I think that's fascinating because often we focus on trying to integrate into our system. Mm. But if we actually look at the skills that they bring through mm. their learning background, mm. let's just focus on those in a little bit more detail. You said rote learning. Mm. What are Chinese students particularly good at? Well, they are very good at memorising things. They have a fabulous memory. Um, they are very good at working independently. All right, so... Um, and probably the other thing that um, we, we probably need to learn and what they are good at is that they actually do value education and they do value learning. So, um, uh, so again, it's about understanding that that probably is happening, but you're not seeing it as you would normally expect to see it with, with, um, with our domestic students. It's an enormous challenge, um, I imagine, coming from your home country all the way over to Australia, embedding into a different culture, a different language mm. system. Uh, what are some of the um, things we need to keep in mind in terms mm. of pastoral care and some of the experiences that our Chinese students might be going through? Yeah. I uh, probably want to preface this by saying every student's journey will probably be very different, but certainly the research talks about what we call an adjustment curve. And, um, you know, so every student that comes would probably uh, have a lot of excitement and adrenaline to start off with. And then, of course, the reality hits about being removed from your culture and, um, and the uh, pressure of study and wanting to impress your parents and making sure that you do the best by them as well as by yourself. Um, most students hit that and then start climbing again in terms of positively engaging in their new environment and that sort of thing. Um, as those uh, events where Chinese students or international students might find though, um, their adjustment difficult, I guess um, the most important thing is we, we probably need to think of is that if it was our own child, how would we want them to be supported in another country um, you know, by a whole heap of people who are complete strangers to us and are culturally a bit different in the background? Um, how I have watched uh, various host families and homestay coordinators within schools deal with this is um, in the best way is to just to, to show them a lot of love and sympathy and support and um, sometimes deal with them a little bit lightheartedly, you know, just uh, show them support and love but, you know, sometimes we might be taking it too seriously that and and we've because we've probably taken it on board that they are at that point that they feel like it's all or nothing but in fact there's always going to be a way forward to um, help to support these students and really it's just about probably um, loving them and supporting them in that way to make sure that they get to where they want to go Now, Barbara, you're an expert on the language of Mandarin. If we compare English to Mandarin, mm -hmm. what are the noticeable linguistic differences? I love this question because uh, when I have had Chinese speakers in the school and, uh, and it's actually a common uh, comment made by uh, native speakers of English and when they observe speakers, uh, Chinese speakers speak, it's about things like pronoun usage. 
you know, and um, that we use he, she, they, it, all of this sort of thing. And um, in Chinese, there is one word, and it's said the same for all of those things. So we wonder why Chinese speakers always then go he when they mean she or, you know, they and them, and they really have to really think about it. It's because this is the main difference. One of the main differences is that pronouns in Chinese are so much simpler. They have one word and it's said the same way. It's written differently, but it covers all those pronouns. So that's the first thing. Very simple. The other thing is that they don't have conjugation of verbs. So no wonder English is so complex for them and they, you know, constantly battle with you know, to use a, a present or past tense or ing or ed or something like that. When, in fact, in Chinese, verbs are not conjugated at all. They don't change. They might add an additional word to indicate that it's past tense, but it doesn't change the spelling or pronunciation of the first of the verb itself. I love that about Chinese language. It is just... It makes it... It's so... Um, logical in how it's being in how it's being developed and how it's used and how it's structured and that sort of thing. Also in Chinese uh, sentence structures are always the same so the, the uh, word pattern remains completely the same the whole time and so you just have to know you know the different parts of the sentence so to speak and then piece it all together so so what do English language students struggle with the most when they're learning the Chinese language? A lot of people say the tones and the complexity of the characters right. in the written language. Um, I personally, again, I'm probably a very visual person, so the characters themselves to me never posed a problem. And, and if you talk about why Chinese people probably are very good at rote learning, it's because they do have to learn how to write the characters. And the characters are actually written a particular way as well. So when I talk about the language being very logical, also the writing of the characters is very logical. It's in a set pattern. It's almost like a dance. You know, you start in one place, you finish in the other. For every character, it's not, it never changes. And um, each character also has different components in it. So if we talk about spelling in English, there is a kind of a spelling in Chinese characters as well. You can break it up into what they call radicals, you know, and that's usually on the left-hand side of the character, and it gives some indication as to what the word might mean. So they have something like what they call a, a wood radical, all right? And we think about everything in our lives that are made of wood, a building, a chair, something like a tree. They oh, Well, actually, the, 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 the radical is actually the word for tree, all right? And so you think, well... We know that whatever this word is going to be, it's made of wood, <laughs> all right? So there you go, logically speaking. Well, what does that character mean? Well, you can sort of go from there. The other side of the character actually gives an indication to the pronunciation of the word. It might change a little bit in um, the uh, consonant that's at the start of the word, but generally speaking, it, it's sort of like a rhyme. It has the same word ending or pronunciation ending, so... It's, uh, that's, uh, that's what people might find difficult about learning Chinese language is the characters, but then, you know, if you break it down and you think about it, it's actually, there's actually ways around it. The last thing, of course, is pronunciation and tones, okay? So um, I went to, like I said, I went to primary school in Hong Kong, and I remember, do, I remember learning, trying to learn the numbers 1 to 10, 
and um, oh my goodness, that was my introduction to to tones at that stage was really interesting. So yeah, I thought oh they've got actually got eight tones in Cantonese, which is you know the dialect in southern China, and um, and I thought how do people get their heads around that? Anyway, as life continued and I was picking up Chinese, Mandarin Chinese that only has four tones, it sort of just makes sense after a while and, and kind of like how we intonate in English and it, that can vary from country to country, you know, an American English is very different to Australian English and, and British English. If you have travelled and you go to other countries and you listen to them and you kind of have a giggle or a laugh because a word might sound like it's means something else or or um, it is a different word it's the same it, that's what tones are in Chinese except and so you just have to learn them like you do your own language you, you understand the nuances and differences and things like that and so as you learn Chinese language you just become attuned to how things should sound you don't think about the tones in the end per se you think about how it sounds and you know you've picked the right word based on how it sounds so and if we look at it from a Chinese student's perspective mm. and they're pronouncing English, mm. how are they finding that? What are the challenges there? Well, just as I've observed about how um, British, American, Australian English might all be different. So that, that's where the problem lies for the Chinese speaker listening to Australian English, say, for example. Many Chinese speakers um, have been brought up perhaps in a system where... American English is the foundation or the, the dialect of choice to learn English. They might, um, you know, I've heard of a lot of Chinese speakers learning English through Voice of America, say, for example. Conversely, you know, um, you have um, UK radio and um, what is the BBC World and things like that um, as another option in um, China. And so they go that way, you know what I mean? So it's just when they come to Australia then and listen to our lovely accent and um, our variants of um, pronunciation, then it becomes another new ball game as well. This might seem like a simple question, but when you are communicating in English to a native Chinese speaker, is it worth just taking your time? Absolutely, absolutely. The thing that you have to be aware of though, and I do it when I speak, and oh, sorry, when I am in a conversation, in a Chinese conversation, is that you know, the, we don't like to hold up the conversation. So you continue to listen and, and you're processing what's happening and you sort of sort of sit there and go, yes, 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 that sort of thing. Chinese speakers will do that enormously. So if you are speaking to them and you've asked them basically a yes or no question, they'll always just say yes, just to be nice and polite and to move the conversation on. And they perhaps are, they're doing one of two things. They are considering what you're saying and still trying to understand, all right? And they're also probably, if they haven't understood, they're probably just trying to save face and, and hope that you're not going to catch them out. And just finally today, Barbara, if we look at um, the benefits of having native Chinese speakers studying in an Australian school, mm. tell us what your view is on that and some of those benefits. All right, so I guess, the reason why a Chinese person has come into an Australian school is for their immersion into English. But we do have to consider the impact that 
Chinese students have on an Australian school, especially if they're quite large in numbers. Okay. So um, if you're talking about a, a, a school setting, we want for students in our schools to experience experience the world and to be world or global participants. And sometimes for students in Australia, it's quite difficult, especially on the Sunshine Coast. And we, you know, we are quite insular. We're quite lucky with a lot of things. So people don't tend to look outside our immediate region to try and improve their worldview, so to speak. They go, well, you know, why do we need to? Or there's no motivation for that. Bringing Chinese, or, you know, it doesn't matter what nationality, I guess, but the Chinese, um, uh, having Chinese students in the school brings in that different approach to um, the world and education that Australian students don't necessarily see. So earlier on I mentioned about the competitiveness of Chinese education and the Chinese education system. We have Chinese students coming into our schools for a purpose, one to immerse in English, to therefore further on down the track get into university and get a good job and etc. So they want to do well at school. So they're going to be highly competitive in the classroom as well. They want to know probably the best way from A to B in the easiest possible time to get the best possible result. Now that's quite anathema to Australian students, you know, it's very much still a social interaction that and that whole cultural aspect that we have towards education about uh, wanting students to exercise those cognitions and, um, and you know, the higher order thinking kind of stuff is, um, it sort of clashes a little bit. So while students, Australian students probably don't see it as intensely as what I've probably just described it, it's exactly what's happening. So um, the benefit of having Chinese students in the classroom is that it probably ups the ante for Australian students in that respect, academically speaking. It brings in, therefore, that other view of education from another part of the world that opens up the eyes and minds of our Australian students. So that's a benefit as well, to see things from another point of view and to see things um, for another purpose, their education being one of those things. Yeah. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you mm. today, Barbara. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. And I hope you enjoyed my interview with Barbara Seawood, Head of Department Senior Schooling Languages at Kiwana Waters State College and District Panel Chair for Chinese on the Sunshine Coast. For more information about our international program, please contact the principal of Caloundra City Private School, Dr Dirk Wellam. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening.